So uh, this evening is the uh, sort of the final review of the year-long series of talks and discussions on dependent origination. And uh, I, it's, it's, it seems very important to do this talk. Uh, because there's a lot of pieces when you talk about this piece and that piece and the other piece. I'm not going to review all the pieces. You, you've had several uh, talks and homeworks and discussions on each of those links, and you can certainly go back and review them uh, on our website or how other people define those links. What I want to do tonight is something a little different, and uh, it's... Uh, I want to. I want to see uh, what was the Buddha trying to say. You see, I want to. I want an overview that really tries to get at the heart of the matter. When he was giving these talks, I always think of his uh, suttas as kind of being condensed, with all the excesses uh, eliminated, because in oral tradition, tr- traditions for year after year of transmission, transmitting those oral traditions. Everything has to be condensed down. So just give me the essence. So the essence, and, but it, it loses the, the communicative flavor of it all. And I'm sure he elaborated in lengthy discourses upon what all this meant. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we have had uh, 2,500 years of comments about what he meant, uh, which often feel very arcane and, contr- and contrived and very ancient, like you're looking back into a, going back into some kind of ancient cave and seeing the remnants of something. It's a feeling I get when I read the, the commentary on some of these uh, suttas. But I want to flesh it out. I want to I look at what it means to us, what it means in this day, what it, what it means overview. What is he trying to say to us? And, and before I, I begin that, I, I just want to say that there are two ways to engage yourself with the Buddhist teaching. One is from the outside in, which you read his suttas and then you uh, try to practice in accordance to what you read. And all of us do that uh, at the beginning. It uh, allows us to get a feeling for the overall structure of what he's saying. I was never much into the details of what he was saying because I think those details have probably been uh, changed and altered over the many, many centuries. But the general structure, you want to know about the Four Noble Truths, you want to know about dependent origination, you want to know about the foundations of mindfulness, that's just the overall structure. And then what happens is it goes from the outside in to the inside out. At some point, a critical change occurs where what your practice is showing you is influencing what you're reading so that you're leading by your practice, not by his words. At first, you're leading by his words. It gives you a general structure for practice, a general movement forward. But at a certain uh, threshold, you start leading by what your own practice is showing you. And then you use his words to encourage and to emphasize certain things, but mostly it just motivates you to keep working because 
his words carries the message of reinforcement to your practice. The problem with that second way is it's, um, it's, it's generally uh, um, not, it's generally in, disapproved of. <laughs> because uh, what I have found is that when you start implying your own message to the Buddha's teaching, you get the scholars uh, sort of, of, of scolding you backward. But that hasn't ever uh, deterred me from continuing. I feel that it's very important to, to look at what is implied in his message rather than just what is literal in his message. And so that I'm going to uh, use the uh, applied method tonight, right? Up until this time, we've well, it hasn't really been literal, but it's been within range. Now it's, now I just want to, what does this thing mean? You see, what, is this, what does this mean? Um, and uh, it's, it's very important, I think, for us to uh, get a sense that he is leading us out of uh, solidification. I mean, if you look at the, 12 links of dependent origination, uh, there are four uh, basic perceptual shifts that occur within the outline of those 12 links, and I'll go through those four shifts. But it's asking us to see the world and ourselves in a vastly different perspective, from a vastly different perspective than we usually do. And uh, um, because if, if we look at the world from the perspective that we normally live with, it's very solid. It's very defined. It's very insulated and isolated. And I think the, the Buddha recognized that uh, he was trying to get the message in of how does this thing melt? How does this thing break apart? Where's the fluidity uh, in all of this? And so his teaching was really an attempt, I believe, especially this teaching and some of the others, to, to take the solidity away from the way the, our perceptual paradigm when we see from such solid shape, from a solid shape called me, and look at the world with such, um, with such an objective uh, and dis, uh, uh, with such an objective certainty of what things are, he's really showing us something here. The liquidity, the, the, the movement of life. And so it's from that vantage point I'd like to undertake this talk and to talk about the four uh, shifts of perspective. The first shift, I think, is well recognized by almost everyone who... Uh, practices dependent origination and is also, uh, you find it very um, prevalent in the literature about dependent origination. And uh, that's the issue that there are an infinite number of influences on every event. That what he's really showing us in detail is that nothing is uh, isolated from anything else. Everything has an influence on everything else. And I think because it's an easy analogy, uh, when you look at the weather, 
uh, you see that the multiple influences that create weather patterns and what has to happen for each of those patterns to be rain or snow, sleet, hail, or sunshine. Uh, and that those patterns are driven by virtually everything in life. In fact, uh, I read where they can't predict uh, they can't predict weather with any more accuracy than they do now because to do so you'd have to take into account uh, little incidences like the movement of butterfly wings upon air currents or our movement through the air or our breath upon currents of air. And because that's an impossible task we leave it in a kind of gross way but the point is, is that each of those influences, in some way, when we move our hand, we are affecting the weather. And when a butterfly flaps its wings, there are currents of air that are in sl slight movement, which affect the patterns. And so you get a sense, I, I, at least I think that the weather gives us a sense of the universality of a single event that it's everything in life affects an event. It's not one thing that affects an event, everything affects it. Because we're constantly in movement, that constant movement is constantly affecting climate in this particular example. And I think the Buddha is showing us very clearly in this systematic way he is undertaking these linkage. Not that one link sets up the next link. I think that's a misunderstanding of what occurs. It's that they all gather together. And I was using the analogy of a, of a table where all of the 12 links have gathered around the table. And it's in some way, the common voices of all the different links that have gathered around that table produce another octave sound that is not in itself one of the guests that have been invited to that table. That sound, that new octave that's being created from the conversation of all the other sound is the, is the octave of self, is the tune or tone of self. Nowhere on the table can you find any guest invited that's, that's defined as self, but all of them together in chorus produce that sense of me being present. And it takes all of those. And it's not just those 12 things independent of the rest of life, because each aspect of life influences each of those 12. And as you go down from the primary causes to the secondary causes to the tertiary causes and on and on, you begin to see that virtually everything, including the butterfly flapping its wings, is creating the sense of me. We are not isolated here. If we realized how much we affected not only the planet we're on, but the universe we inhabit, we would be very, we would have a much, much more dignified approach to our living. And we can get a sense of that. We can get a sense of that as you begin to be quiet enough so that the present moment 
if we start living within the present, right, so that there's an awareness of present moment, you get a sense that in the quiet of the present moment, things are ill-defined and distinctions aren't as clear. And in that sort of, of nebulous surround where there is a, a, a heightened sense of aliveness because we are no longer fostering imaginative responses within that aliveness that deflect that central core of our, of our, of our life away from us, you get a very heightened sense of awareness, but not a lot of distinction as you get quiet. Distinction comes from the noise I offer things, from the story I tell about things, from the objects I note and have a conversation with. And you see that in the quiet of the present, uh, there is less and less influence, but more and more symbiotic relationship within that present where things aren't divided as separate from. And therefore, even the sense of being influenced by is kind of a misnomer. It's more like everything sort of arises together. Everything sort of lives together, you might say lives together in an undivided way. And I think that, that is more of the issue when we're talking about dependent origination than 12 independent links adding to a central theme of, of, uh, of self. This is, all these things are rising together. And see, this is where practice influences teaching. If we know that in ourselves, we, we see that in ourselves, it begins to understand that we're not talking about sequential matter here. We're talking about something that's commonly occurring moment after moment. And as we pull back uh, from that quiet, from that quiet center into relationships, we begin to feel the effect that relationships, because now as we pull back from the quiet, things begin to be related to through our conversation. And as we pull back from that quiet, we can see that life, from that perspective, from a little noisier perspective than dead center in the present moment, that relationships are what give and define each of us. Now, I don't mean uh, human relationships, I mean anything we're relating to, any experience that are, is occurring. And you can see that over time, and I think dependent origination begins to show us the effect of relationship over time on mind and on object. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that in the course of our experiencing life, you begin to see the commonality of themes that are occurring and having their impact upon the mind as they are being seen. Each thing has a 
repository of feeling associated with it, of, of past memories that have accumulated over time and over experience. And so each thing is imparting a certain, a certain uh, information to me that sort of defines how I see. You see that? So now I can't see freshly. I see from the way things have affected me from the past. And so relationship, relationships are the defining way I perceive life. Their impact, their imprint over time has accumulated sufficiently at a certain age where we no longer see freshly. We see from the relationships we have known. It's all there. It's gathered storm. It's the past affecting the present. And I think dependent origination handles, asks the question, what is it that affects the present? How does the past, it, uh, how does the past affect the present? I think it answers that question very well. It doesn't say exactly what these objects are that are being affected because there isn't any intrinsic nature to them. It's just the influences themselves that become the abiding way we look and relate to objects. So I want, I want to read something. My quantum physics for this evening. This is in, uh, for those of you who question my science, <laughs> which everyone should. <laughs> this was in Scientific American, uh, August 2013. So just last August. So it's a, it's a the, the title of it, Quantum Physics, What is Real? Anything like that is going to get my attention. Physics speak of the world as being made of particles and force fields. But it is not at all clear what particles and force fields actually are in, in reality. The world may instead consist of bundles of property, such as color and shape. Traditionally, people assume that properties are universals. In other words, they belong to an abstract general category. They are always possessed by particular things. They cannot exist independently. For instance, when you think of red, you usually think of particular red things and not of some freely floating uh, item called redness. But you could invert this way of thinking. You could regard properties as having an existence independent of objects that possess them. Properties may be what philosophers call particulars or concrete individual entities. So what is, what is that? So I don't know. It's like, uh, I don't know. What it says to me is that as we plunder the mysteries of science, what is intrinsically true, where we actually form things around are beginning to be questioned. Right? It used to be particles. Then the particles held certain shapes. The shapes held certain patterns or, or colors or particulars. Now they're wondering if the very, of the, if the very um, descriptions themselves aren't what's real and that those descriptions in some way create or define the properties rather than vice versa. 
Isn't that interesting? It's, it's not interesting because I understand it scientifically. It's interesting because it throws the whole thing off. It makes me go scratch my head and go, whoa, you see? But that's dependent origination. What's, what, is it, what is it that we've gathered around here? The table's set. We have 12 guests at the table. What is it that we're, what is it that, what's the expectation? What's it forming? What's it forming, you see? It's a very interesting question, and it takes us uh, into the next, into the next uh, perceptual shift. The perceptual shift that I think is uh, crucial uh, is that dependent origination begins to show us how nothing becomes something. Nothing becomes something. Uh, it's, uh, so, the, I mean, uh, what this scientific article is showing and what your practice is likely leaning towards is that everywhere you turn, at the basis of what you see is nothing. I mean, if you look at dependent origination as it begins to formulate a sense of me, it's based on a feeling tone. That is a gravity. That, you might think of that as a force, a gravity force that brings other qualities to it because it's such a... It's, it has such a, an attractive quality, the feeling tone. So when there's a feeling tone, what, what gravitates around it is an expression of memory and a growing sense of liking or not liking, depending upon the feeling tone. And that, around that comes a message of history and a tone and story associated with it. But what is a feeling tone? It's got all of that component to it. But what is it in essence? And everything it gathers around, what are they in essence? What's a thought in essence? What's a thought in essence? We've all seen it. See, none of us know. Is it something or is it nothing? Well, really, it's nothing. But why is it that we make it something? We make it a lot. We make it something very special. We infuse a belief system into a nothing called a feeling or a thought. And suddenly, it, it directs our entire life. It holds a direction, a reverence, a relevance to everything we do. But when you look at what it is, you can't find anything. And in Dharma practice, wherever you look, you can't find anything. Look at the 12 links. There's nothing there. Every link, sanskars, just tendencies of mind to make something of the past into the present. That's what a sanskar is. It's a conditioned tendency to think or be or see or perceive in a certain way. makes something recognizable, but in its essence, it's just a, the function of memory or of, of certainty or of knowledge, all of those. It's nothing in essence. And then once a sanskar gets going and 
begins to shape the content of mind and then the self the self around the shape of mind then you have a consciousness that has become noisy because of all of the ways that it's being driven by the various experiences that it sees and the consciousness itself is is a confluence of all these other invisible are they there or not there ah i don't i don't know you know all of that the energies of all of that and because we sense that ambiguity of life we come out and we come out forcefully we come out with impact we come out with determination we come out with relevance we come out and say i know and we opinionate and we decide and we are knowledge based because that holds the world in a crystalled clarity that defies or belies the substance from which it is made see how nothing becomes something right there independent origination ready to be flushed out but it's also right here for us to flush out not in terms of a philosophical stance but to actually see the realization just the willingness to look because remember that all of this is propelled by the by ignorance by the inability to look and so if we have the ability to see we can see through ourselves our clever disguises our images and see what is intrinsically there and we have to be willing to see our absence are we willing to go that far are we willing to push ourselves back because at every level there's a boundary that has been created and imposed that has a certainty associated with it like the boundary of our psychology right all the edges of our psychology and all of the ways that our sanskars play upon one another to create the edges and resistances and reactivities and the certainties of a mind that's shaped just like this and now i've got to go see somebody in therapy about how to change that mind when left alone it's already changing believe you me because if there's one message in all of this it's that everything is permeable everything is conditioned everything is malleable and pliable everything is in constant movement and changing that's also what dependent origination is saying to us not that link hardened link another hardened link all of those together forms the fence of me nonsense this is more like clouds different cloud clusters moving through each other around and forming new shapes of clouds only to be dispersed by the winds into different shapes entirely it's really an extraordinary way if you can just enter the mystery 
Just enter the mystery of the, of the conversation. Enter the symphony of our life. The orchestration of this, you know, is just amazing. What he's drawing, see, he's bringing us into the absolute majesty that's in front of us. Where things are, are in a configuration that belies what our perceptions say they are. Moving and flux and change. See, that I, that I believe is the essence of the message of dependent origination. Mysterious, but able to be discerned, able to be seen for just that mystery. Because wherever you look in the links, they're fleeting, they're just, they're hollow, they're, you're just transparent. Wherever you go in these things, you can give them a name, you can give them the certainty of the next link, and this link led to that link, but to do so, you're coming back out into the hardened structure from which he's encouraging us to release ourselves from. See, that any teaching can go in opposite direction. If it comes a certainty, now I know all about dependent origination, well, you may know all about the facts of dependent origination, but nothing about the realization. This is to bring us into the realization of mystery. Into each of us. The mystery of each of us. Not some outlying mystery. Internal mystery. What is it like to sit without the eye thought? So now we just have the group of 12 visitors around the table, each of them feeling, you can, you can call forth any one of those. Okay, let me see the scars. Let me see the states of mind. Let me just feel the sense status that's coming in. Let me feel the contact. Let me, let me sense the consciousness that's being formed from all of that content. Let me feel my birth. Let me feel my aging. And let me feel in the quietude of this moment my death. Not my physical death. And so that begins to show us the perceptual shifts that he's encouraging us to see. How there are multiple influences that affect all of us, affect everything all the time in the swirling, transitory life. That the Nothing is fixed. Everything is in movement. And then the fact that you can describe the movement, you can describe the impact something has on something else, but you can't tell me what that something else is. You can't tell me in essence what it is. And 
Then he moves us into the way we have shaped the world, which is the third shift of perception, the very way that we create the world from our own projections. And that also is within the lines of dependent origination. He's showing us that the world and self are not two things. They also hold the shift of mutual influence. That they're both nothing, arising as something together, in absolute synchronicity. Quantum mechanics once more says that an object at the subatomic level, but many physicists claim at any level, is a potential. It is not a thing. It re, it has a, it's like a, a possibility that consciousness creates at the moment that it actually sees, hears, tastes, smells, creates the object from that potential, moment after moment, according to these theorists, we are creating what we're seeing from a potential of it being many different things. It's like at the very quietude of the moment, when we are very quiet together. See, when things have not come into their forced presence through our conversation, when something is still nothing in the quiet center of the present moment, when conversation has ceased and everything is living together as a rising together within the very quiet center of the present moment, everything is a potential. Nothing has come out and become anything. And when our conversation begins, we then create from that potential the me's and you's and this's and that's of life. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that, doesn't that welcome your heart in? You see, you have to be very courageous here. You see, you, there's the veil. You, you, you have to want to, you have to want to know what's behind this whole thing. You have to want to know what is true. What's, what's the working of this? Because to go into it, to observation of it, means you will enter it. It doesn't mean you will stay an objective observer of it. it, it you will be influenced. You will become it. You can't keep yourself outside. Many of us try to do that by having an insight or having an experience of it and pulling ourselves back into safety, the safety of thought about what we just observed. And so this, this sense that 
perception itself, we project onto the world. Look around. You see, everything you see is known by you because your mind is determining what it is as it's seeing it. And if it doesn't know it, it comes pretty close to what it needs to know by saying, oh, I don't know what that is. That also defines it. And through that definition, we have a safe field of ourselves with the memory of what we have just seen being created by what we have just seen, just as we have now created the very thing we see through the knowledge we have invested in it. It's two sides of a tent, two poles of a tent. See, this is where he's taking us. If you get too scholarly on this thing, you just take notes about it, you know, and walk off and claim that that was an interesting subject. But if you enter it, with your own practice. And so he also takes us now, he, for the fourth change of perspective, shift of perspective, you see? The first shift was multiple influences that give rise to any event, any experience. The second is the way that nothing becomes something. The third is the way we create the world through our projection and in return the world creates us out of that nothing. And the fourth is the inevitability of the suffering that occurs from becoming something. See, that's, now, he's, now he's introducing the rub. Because once the feelings are expounded upon and moved towards, and then there's an individuated someone who is in pursuit of a desired something, now you have a rub to life. Anytime you've created something from fiction... you have a rub against the natural order of things, which was that it's nothing. You're chasing nothing. Nothing's chasing nothing. But to make two somethings, you've got to have a rub. You just can't create something out of nothing and expect there not to be some kind of problem. And so... What he's showing us, and these are the last sequenciation, the birth, the aging, and the death, is the rub that has to occur if you have remained ignorant through this entire linkage sequenciation. He's saying what, once you start pursuing something that was nothing, and you have made that determination. Only your mind is making it something. It's still nothing, but your mind is making it something. Once you have created that, you have created the solidity of your being and the solidity of the object you're chasing. And he says, then you enter a paradigm shift 
in which everything was arising together at the center of the present to everything is now at the peripheral of that present moment because thoughts are now leading us astray from the present aliveness that was always there. And so now we are stampeding our way forward. And he says this is a perceptual fix. And this is the problem. Because once that occurs, the mind is the organ in which you are being directed. I want. I want. I am creating what I want. I'm not seeing that and I am pursuing what I want. And the mind, the same mind that is looking after and pursuing that object is also logically thinking about the nature of life that the distance I have from this object and the time it's going to take me to get to this object. It thinks in terms of the way it's perceiving. It doesn't think in terms of reality. It thinks in terms of the way it's wanting. So the wanting has created the paradigm now that has fooled us all. And we continue to want because that's what gets our sense of purpose and meaning in life. And to do that, we have to buy the logic that the perceptual shift has, has taken. The logic now is that the, what is meaningful to me is outside of me and I have to cover the distance between me and that goal. So time comes in and chasing the future so that at some point I can grasp what I really need and then be satisfied or so the mind thinks it can be satisfied only to have wanting reoccur because the mind is being driven by that. That's how the mind stays in control through its patterns. And the logic it uses is the logic of this paradigm. I need to get to that so I can procure that and have some contentment. That's its logic. And from this paradigm, that logic makes complete sense. But from nothing, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, you try to say that. <laughs> I just want to, I, this is so, so in, oh, what have we gotten ourselves into here? Let me go back to see what, okay, so, oh my God. Because then, also, once we have a solid object called me and a wanting mind that's expressing itself in the ways I just described, we're going to have birth, physical birth, we're going to have physical illness, and we're going to have physical death. That's the inevitability of the equation. That's how this system works based upon the perceptions I hold within it. That's how it looks. Jeez. Even a partial realization of this will send you right back to the first link, which is ignorance. Okay, I'm on top of it now. Let me look, let me look and really look this time. Because the whole thing, moment after moment, has been building its drama, of its impact, of its roar of persuasion, of its, the rub of, a, of, its, of our vulnerability. All of that. All of that. 
you see. He lays out the entire system of life in front of you. He lays out the whole way we perceive the world. He lays out what the world is in perception. And he lays out the rub that's intrinsic within that separation. He lays it all out in this beautiful, beautiful teaching. Now, do we work this thing mentally or do we work this thing through realization? That's the question that we're left with. We've had a year, homework, discussions, outside readings. Has it been just to build the details of a satisfactory structure so that you can tell others about dependent origination? Or has it led to a realization of this very sequenciation in our lives at this moment? Because the Garden of Eden is as present as the apple we're eating. The apple we're eating is the desired association that seems to take us out of the Garden of Eden because we are pursuing it. We are constantly eating that apple while living fundamentally, intrinsically within that garden. And that can't help you shake your head. You just have to. You say, whoa, this is too... So I leave you with the question, how much of this do you want to know? Because it's all there. Thank you. Can we just sit for a minute or two? We won't have uh, questions tonight uh, because of our social event. But I think a moment of quiet is deserved. We've just ended a series. But not its influence. Okay, thank you all for your attention. Thank you, thank you.